19th of August 1987, Hungerford, England. 27-year-old Michael Robert Ryan goes on a shooting spree killing 16 people, one dog and seriously injuring 15 others. Six hours later, barricaded in a school classroom, Ryan would commit suicide with a single gunshot to the head. This is the story of the Hungerford Massacre. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hi Islanders, tonight we go to Hungerford, England, where I tell you about what would become known as the Hungerford Massacre. Stay tuned at the end of the show as I tell you about the island making it into the final 10 for the Australian Podcast Awards and how to keep on voting. But but for now, I'll get back to the story. So, the Hungerford Massacre. It was what some would call a lone wolf shooting spree and would end up with the death toll of 16 people, one dog and the perpetrator. 15 others would be seriously injured. Let's get to the perpetrator, Michael Robert Ryan, born 18th of May 1960 to a canteen lady Dorothy and council building inspector Alfred Ryan. They lived virtually his whole life at 4 Southview, Hungerford. And Hungerford is a small town, 107 kilometres or 67 miles west of London, with a population of around 5,000 people. Ryan was an only child, and it was said that he was a spoilt child, even described by a family friend, Dennis Morley, as a spoilt little wimp. He used to get everything he wanted from his mother. He used to beat her up. She paid for his new cars every year. He used to hit his mother a lot, but couldn't pick on a man. When he was younger, he developed a keen interest in guns. One of his neighbours remarked that at the age of 12, Ryan shot at cows with a .177 calibre rifle. Nice. Teachers at John O'Gaunt Secondary School, which he attended, said that Ryan was a C-level student of below-average achievement. Andy Puffett, one of Ryan's school colleagues, said, He never mixed with anyone. He could not play football and he was picked on a lot. Now, being picked on or bullied at school seems to feature a lot in shootings as we seem to constantly see in the news even today. But I will go on. In his last year of school, age 16, Ryan was absent most of the time, but his interest in weapons, military effects, ceremonial swords and firearms became stronger. He was subscribed to several survival and firearm magazines, such as Soldier of Fortune. Once he was old enough to get a firearms licence, 
he started collecting pistols, shotguns, rifles and semi-automatic rifles. Eventually, Ryan would gain some labouring work at a local nursery and at a theme park nearby. Now, Hungerford is quite a rural town, and the farmers all had shotguns, so the sound of gunfire was normal for the residents to hear. Ryan often went out shooting, especially when he acquired a new gun. Ryan never really had any relationships that lasted at all. In fact, his auntie Connie Ryan said, He was supposed to be married, but when I phoned up after they invited us to go, his mother said, He doesn't know whether he wants to be married or not. First of all, it's on and then it's off. I'll let you know when he's made up his mind. I didn't hear any more. His auntie also said, He told me that he went shooting rabbits one night and he came across a fellow much bigger than himself and he got a little bit stroppy with him. So Michael took a gun out of his pocket and held it at him. He said that the chap ran away and then he said, that just goes to prove the power of a gun. Wow, this guy was a time bomb and no one did anything about it. Anyway, let's go on. In 1985, Ryan's father died aged 78 of cancer, and this had a profound effect on him. His auntie Connie said in relation to Ryan's father's death, He was his life. When he went, Michael seemed to go. So it looks like not only was Ryan close to his mother, but also extremely close to his father. He had no friends and was a loner, creating his own fantasy world with his guns and survival magazines. This fantasy world was perpetuated by his mother. Ryan's last fantasy was that he had been befriended by an army colonel who was giving him flying lessons and was buying him a Ferrari sports car. His mother told friends the same story and added that she had stayed in the colonel's home and that he was purchasing a house for her as a gift. Of course, all this was bullshit. I guess if you're being bullied at school and you live in a small town, it's hard to make relationships with other people. As well, if you're extremely close to your parents, It would be hard to just move away and start over in a new place and you would not have much of a social or moral compass. Ryan would end up joining the Tunnel Rifle and Pistol Club and the manager remarked that he was an excellent shot. Ryan's collection of firearms at the time of the massacre included and the following is from the Hungerford Report by Colin Smith. CVO QPM Chief Constable. A Beretta 9mm pistol purchased the 17th of December 1986. A Zabala shotgun purchased 20th of January 1987. A Browning shotgun purchased 29th of January 1987. A Bernadelli .22 pistol purchased 2nd of May 1987, 
a CZ also self-loading 0.32 millimeter pistol purchased the 13th of May 1987. Now get this, a Kalashnikov 7.62mm semi-automatic rifle purchased the 6th of August 1987 and an Underwood Carbine 0.30 rifle purchased on the 8th of August 1987. The shotguns were acquired following the issue of a shotgun certificate in 1978. Police inquiries at the time showed the absence of any previous convictions or any information casting doubt on his suitability to possess shotguns. His application had been countersigned by his own doctor and this was verified by the police. He was known by local police officers and regarded as always well-dressed, of good behaviour, courteous and quiet, but a bit of a loner. This remained so throughout the currency of his possession of the shotgun certificate, which was renewed in 1984 and 1987. On the 10th of December 1986, an application was received from Ryan for a firearm certificate for two pistols. Inquiries revealed that he had served his probationary period and was a full member of the Dunmore Shooting Centre, a home office registered club at Abingdon. Nothing was found to Ryan's detriment and he had already installed a gun cabinet suitable for the security of the weapons he sought. This was in his bedroom at his home. The application was granted on the 11th of December 1986 with the condition that the firearms could only be used on approved ranges. Notification was subsequently received that Ryan had acquired a Beretta 9mm pistol and a Smith & Wesson .38 pistol and his certificate was endorsed accordingly. On the 2nd of April 1987, A further application was received seeking to increase the number of pistols he was entitled to hold to three. He wanted to acquire .22 and .32 pistols and to dispose of his Smith & Wesson .38. He again satisfied the necessary criteria and his security arrangements were inspected by a crime prevention officer in accordance with the force policy when three or more weapons are to be held with a favourable result. His firearms cabinet had two separately keyed locks, an internal ammunition section using a third key, and it was fixed by four bolts to an exterior wall. The variation was granted on the 30th of April and subsequently notification was received that Ryan had disposed of the Smith & Wesson .38 pistol and acquired a Bernadelli .22 and a CZ .32 pistol. His certificate was called in for amendment. On the 14th of July 1987, Ryan applied to vary his certificate so as to acquire additionally a 7.62 rifle and a .3 carbine. He had now also become a member of the Wiltshire Shooting Centre, a home office approved club at Station Road, Divisies, with facilities for shooting full bore rifles. 
and as his application complied with all the criteria, it was granted on the 30th of July 1987. Notification was received on the 13th of August that Ryan had acquired a Kalashnikov 7.62 rifle and on the 14th of August that he had acquired an Underwood Carbine .30 rifle. Inquiries have revealed that he practiced with these weapons at the Wiltshire Shooting Centre prior to the 19th of August. It is known that shortly before the Hungerford incident, Ryan sold the Bernardelli .22 pistol and sent the .32 pistol for repair with a firearms dealer. Thus, on the 19th of August, Ryan had in his legal possession the three shotguns, the Beretta 9mm pistol and the two rifles. Well, for a place that doesn't let the local police carry guns, this guy had plenty of firepower at his disposal. So now let's get to the morning of the 19th of August, 1987. I'd like just to say first that Michael Robert Ryan had no previous convictions. In fact, he had no problems with law enforcement at all. Although he was considered a bit of a bit strange and a loner, he also had no, no diagnosed medical or mental conditions. As I said, all his firearms were legal and he had passed all the requirements to own them. At 27 years of age, no one could predict what was about to happen. Now, I will draw heavily on the Hungerford Report here rather than newspaper articles as it is the truest version of what went on. It's about 12.30pm August the 19th, 1987 at Savonake Forest, Wiltshire. Ryan is driving through Savonake Forest and in his car are his collection of guns. He is also wearing a bullet-resistant waistcoat. Savonake Forest is approximately 7 miles or 11 kilometres west of Hungerford. Mrs Susan Godfrey, aged 33, of Reading, had just finished picnicking with her two children, Hannah, age four, and James, two, when she was abducted by Ryan at gunpoint. Ryan took with her from the car a ground sheet, which was subsequently found spread out on the grass about 75 yards or 70 metres away. Mrs Godfrey was found some 10 yards away from the ground sheet, having been shot 13 times in the back with the Beretta pistol. It is possible that Ryan intended to rape Mrs. Godfrey and that he shot her when she tried to run away, but this has to be speculation. Mrs. Godfrey had not been sexually interfered with and the only source of any other evidence is that of the only two witnesses, her two very young children. They would end up walking off and a lone pensioner, Myra Rose, well, she saw them and little Hannah told Myra that a man in black killed my mummy and I'm going home. It's a house with a blue door. Myra thought they were playing hide and seek. She kept them with her until a policewoman eventually came and got them. At this stage, no one knew what was going on. 
From Savanake Forest, Ryan is thought to have driven eastwards along the A4 back towards Hungerford, stopping at the Golden Arrow service station three miles or five kilometres short at about 12.35pm. Ryan was driving his silver Vauxhall Astra and at the service station he was seen to fill a petrol can with petrol before discharging a weapon which was identified as the M1 carbine through a glass screen at the cashier Kakorb Dean missing her. Remarkably unhurt, the cashier took cover beneath the counter only to be pursued by Ryan who tried unsuccessfully to fire at her at point-blank range. The magazine of his rifle had fallen out probably because he'd inadvertently hit the release mechanism and he had already discharged the only round that had been in it. I mean, wow, how lucky can you get? This shooting was witnessed by a motorbike rider, Ian George, who had just started to leave the petrol station after filling up. The rider then sped off in a panic, thinking there was an armed robbery in in progress and he alerted police as soon as he could find a phone in Froxfield. This was the first emergency services call to police. Remember, this is in a time that not many people at all had mobile phones like we do today. Ryan then drove off towards Hungerford. At around 12.45pm, Ryan was seen to return to his home address at 4 Southview Hungerford and go inside the house, slamming the door behind him. His intentions then are open to conjecture because of a lack of eyewitnesses, but it is thought that he then set the house alight with the petrol he'd just bought and that he intended to drive off somewhere having ensured his survival kit and three firearms the two rifles and the Beretta, were in his car. It is of note that, the, that his three shotguns were left in the house. Ryan then shot the family dog, and it is believed from the fact that he subsequently shot at his car, and from, from what he later said to police before he killed himself, that the car would not start. It seems that Ryan then removed the three firearms from his car and almost immediately shot his first two victims, Mr. Roland Mason and Mrs. Sheila Mason, at the rear of their home at 6 Southview. Mr. Mason was killed by six shots from the Kalashnikov and his wife once in the head by the Beretta. Ryan, having murdered Mr. and Mrs. Mason first ran east up Southview towards the footpath leading to the common, shooting and injuring Mrs. Marjorie Jackson and Lisa Mildenhall. Marjorie Jackson was shot once in the lower back as she watched Ryan from the window of her living room and 14-year-old Lisa Mildenhall four times in both legs and abdomen as she stood outside her home. Lisa would recount that Ryan smiled at her before crouching and shooting her. Meanwhile, Marjorie pulled 77-year-old Dorothy Smith into her home as she told Ryan off for making noise. 
Marjorie then telephoned Emergency Services 999, then telephoned a colleague of her husband, Mr George White, and asked him to contact her husband, Ivor Jackson, both of them being nearby, to let them know what had happened. This, sadly, was to lead to both of them being shot. Marjorie informed White that she'd been injured, her husband insisting on returning home, and Mr White offered to drive him. Marjorie survived, and Dorothy Smith was uninjured. Ryan then moved onto the footpath leading to the common. Mr Kenneth Clements was walking with his family along the footpath and was confronted by Ryan who shot and killed him. Luckily, his family climbed over a fence and ran to safety. Mr Clements had previously been warned of a gunman but had disregarded this advice. This death and the following six were all believed to have been carried out with the Kalashnikov. Ryan then turned back down Southview, shooting and killing PC Roger Berriton, who had just arrived on the scene after reports of gunfire and was still seated in his police car. Berriton was hit four times in his chest. His police car veered and crashed into a telephone pole. He was able to radio his colleagues that he had been shot before he died. Whilst PC Brereton was murdered with the Kalashnikov, it is believed he was first shot with the Beretta. Ryan next shot at Mrs Linda Chapman and her daughter Alison, who had just driven into Southview, seriously injuring both of them. Ryan fired 11 rounds from his semi-automatic into their Volvo 360. The bullets travelled through the bonnet of the car, hitting and critically wounding Allison in her right thigh. Ryan also shot through the windscreen, hitting Linda with glass and a bullet in her left shoulder. Mrs Chapman was able, however, to drive out of Southview without further injury, while Ryan was reloading his gun. She drove to a local doctor to get treatment for her injuries. Allison had a bullet lodged at the base of her spine and it was too dangerous to remove and was left in place. Ryan continued walking down Southview and shot and killed Mr Abdur Khan, age 84, who was in the back garden of his home mowing his lawn at 24 Fairview Road. He then shot and injured Mr Alan Lepetit, who had helped build Ryan's gun display unit. Alan walking along Fairview Road, having been previously warned of the shooting in that area. An ambulance, which had been summoned to the scene, had stopped in Fairview Road before reversing into Southview Road. Ryan shot at the ambulance, slightly injuring the attendant, Hazel Hazlitt. The ambulance then drove off before Ryan had a chance to shoot again. At this stage, Mr George White, who had previously been telephoned by Mrs Jackson, drove into Southview in his Toyota with Mr Ivor Jackson as passenger. 
Ryan killed Mr. White with a single shot to the head and seriously injured Mr. Jackson, who had head and chest injuries. Ivor Jackson would then act dead, hoping Ryan would leave. As a result of the shooting, Mr. White's Toyota crashed into PC Brereton's police car. Dorothy Ryan, the mother of Michael Ryan, who'd been shopping, then drove into Southview and parked her car behind the Toyota. She walked past both the Toyota and PC Brereton's police car and was shot dead as she attempted to reason with her son. Ryan shot her in the abdomen and legs before firing two fatal shots into her back as she lay on the ground. Now, Ryan was very close to his mother, and it is unknown why he killed her. Some think that it may have been because Dorothy Ryan had recently attended an interview for a full-time job, and this affected Michael Ryan so much as his mum had only worked a few hours a week at the school canteen. This may have flicked the switch in Ryan's head, maybe thinking that his mum would now become more independent and possibly move on in her life and leave him behind. I mean, it's really hard to say. Anyway, at this stage you may be wondering where the police are. Well, that is a story in itself. Now, I'll briefly go over the basics here as there is too much technical information that will get in the way of telling the story. There were only two phone lines into the emergency services switchboard at Hungerford. As the amount of 999 calls came in, they were unable to be properly processed by the operator. A small subdivisional control room at Newbury Police Station, at which two officers, with a third assisting, working under a senior officer, had the problem of receiving all emergency and other calls from Hungerford. Transmission of signals between this control room and divisional personnel is via three base stations at Greenham Common, Newbury Hospital and John O'Gaunt School, Hungerford each necessary to provide UHF radio cover for the subdivision, albeit incomplete due to the dead areas. Whilst the controller can transmit on all three channels simultaneously or separately by operating the appropriate select button, all incoming messages are received by the one controller through one loudspeaker allowing only one incoming transmission to receive attention. VHF communication could only be used as an alternative to, not together with, UHF communication. So, you can see that the controller can only focus on one incoming transmission at a time, and during an incident of this magnitude, Only having one controller taking messages is extremely inadequate. The communication difficulties were made worse by the unprecedented demands being made that day on the public telephone network in Hungerford. It became so swamped that it was completely unable to cope 
and this, of course, influenced the police's ability to use lines additional to the internal police network. At 6.45pm, British Telecom, who gave valuable support to police in providing extra facilities, took the decision to blank out significant parts of the Hungerford Telephone Exchange so that police telephone numbers faced less competition for the remaining exchange facilities. Too bad they couldn't have done that earlier. Police did have in total seven mobile phones and Vodafone were quick to respond and provide a further six phones. However, the cellular network quickly became overloaded as the press started to become involved. Vodafone had to blank out all mobile subscribers in the area other than the blocks of numbers within which the police numbers were located. This had the effect of significantly reducing pressure on the cellular system in the area, but of course also deprived the police of the use of their own personal mobile phones. But the press still had their numbers working. So police set up a command and control office headed by the commanding officer Charles Pollard but the information coming in was inaccurate and out of date in regards to trying to track the movements of the gunman, Michael Ryan, who was constantly on the move. They called on air support, but the only helicopter they had was in for a service, but it was rushed into action to try and locate and track Ryan. Now, this is pretty brave of the pilots, having their helicopter in for servicing, and when they get the call to action, the service guys rush the thing back together and the pilots fly off. Now, this is absolutely commendable. One thing that would hamper the police helicopter was all of the news media helicopters that started to fly into the area, even though there was now a no-fly zone. The pilot would go on to say that he was severely distracted while flying because of all the news helicopters in the area and he had to keep an eye on them. Now these news pricks really make you sick. Here is an extremely dangerous operation going on. They're told to stay the fuck away. But no, gotta get the story and get it out first. Just look at the news of the world scandal but that again is another story. Police did contact their tactical firearms team, but they were on a training mission 40 miles or 64 kilometres away. It would take them nearly an hour to get to Hungerford. One of the problems they would face is a lack of an armoured vehicle to get around as it was still unclear where Ryan was at this time and they would be an easy target for someone with Ryan's expertise and firepower. The incident will end up being one of those things that drastically changes everything forever. As 9-11 changed the world, this incident would change so many things. So Ryan had just killed his mum as she returned home from shopping outside their home in Southview. At this stage, there are seven dead and seven injured. Ryan then made his way across the playing fields where he shot and injured Mrs. Betty Tolliday, 
who was in her home in Clark's Gardens. Betty was shouting at Ryan for making so much noise as she assumed he was shooting at paper targets in the woods. How wrong she was. Ryan then ran to the Memorial Gardens where he encountered and killed Mr Francis Butler, a young father of two who was walking his dog. He shot at but missed teenager Andrew Cadle who sped away on his bicycle. Ryan discarded the Underwood carbine at this point and left the Memorial Gardens, shooting dead Mr Marcus Barnard, who was driving his taxi towards Bullpit Lane. Marcus was shot in the head, which caused a massive injury, killing him instantly. Sadly, in the confusion and lack of communication between police and the helicopter, Marcus had actually been diverted down towards Ryan by police who really had no idea where Ryan was. Again, because of inaccurate and late reports coming in from the 999 emergency call centre. At this point, Ryan initially discarded his Kalashnikov, but then recovered it. It is possible it was then empty. All subsequent deaths were caused by the Beretta. After walking to the junction of Bullpit Lane and Priory Avenue, Ryan shot Mrs Anne Honeybone, who was driving along Priory Avenue, slightly injuring her. Ryan then walked up Priory Avenue back in the direction of Southview. At the junction of Hillside Road, Mr John Storms, a washing machine repairman, was stationary in his Renault Express work van and he was shot and seriously injured by Ryan. Seriously injured, he crouched below the dashboard and felt the van shake as Ryan fired two more rounds into it. Luckily, they didn't hit him. Mr Bob Barley, a local builder, came to John's rescue by dragging him out of his van and into the safety of his home. Police at this time were desperately trying to evacuate the town centre. Mr Douglas Wainwright and his wife Kathleen, parents of PC Trevor Wainwright of Hungerford Police Station, were driving their car in Fairview Road. As they drew alongside Ryan, he shot into the car, killing Douglas and seriously injuring his missus, Kathleen. Kathleen would later say that her husband hit the brakes as soon as the windscreen shattered. Ryan fired eight rounds into their Datsun Bluebird, hitting Douglas in the head and Kathleen in the chest and shoulder. Kathleen, seeing that her husband was dead and that Ryan was approaching the car whilst reloading, unbuckled her seatbelt and ran. The Wainwrights were visiting their son, PC Trevor Wainwright of the Hungerford Police Force, but in an awful twist of fate, Constable Wainwright had signed Ryan's request to extend his firearm certificate only weeks earlier. I mean, fuck's sake, how would you be? After continuing along the road towards Terence Hill, Ryan shot and slightly injured Mr Kevin Lance, who was driving a Ford Transit towards him. 
He then went to the junction of Terence Hill and Priory Avenue, shooting dead 51-year-old handyman Mr. Eric Vardy, who was driving a Leyland Sherpa along Priory Avenue with workmate Stephen Ball. Stephen recalls they drove into Ryan's path while on their way to do a job. Stephen could see Kevin Lance running into a side street holding his arm from being shot and the next thing he knew, the windscreen was shattered by a hail of bullets. Eric, his co-worker, was hit twice in the head and upper torso, causing him to crash the van. Eric would die two days later in hospital from shock and hemorrhage from his neck wound. Stephen Ball suffered no serious injuries. It is now 1.30pm, only an hour into the shooting spree. As you can imagine, so much has gone on in this short time and police have only known about this for about 40 minutes. You can imagine what was going on as the police scrambled to get some kind of handle on what was happening and to try and work out what to do about it. To get that into a bit of perspective, we are now in minute 38 of the podcast. Imagine having to organise some sort of reaction to what has already gone on in that amount of time. So, let's keep going. After leaving Terence Hill, Ryan walked via Orchard Park Close into Priory Road, where he shot and killed Sandra Hill, who was driving her Renault 5. A passing soldier, Carl Harries, rushed to Sandra's car and attempted in vain to apply first aid, but she died in his arms. Ryan then walked down Priory Road towards the John O'Gaunt School. The whole time while he was on the move, he would shoot at anyone he saw, sometimes missing them and sometimes just grazing them with the shots. These people were not counted in the overall injury toll. Now, Islanders, get your tissues if you haven't already. Ryan walked into number 60 Priory Road, broke into the house and shot dead Mr Victor Gibbs and seriously injured Mrs Myrtle Gibbs, both who lived there. Victor was killed instantly as he attempted to shield his wheelchair-bound wife Myrtle from Ryan with his own body. Mrs Gibbs subsequently died from her injuries in hospital. I mean, that is just so sad. After emerging from 60 Priory Road, Ryan shot at the houses opposite, injuring Mr Michael Jennings at 62 Priory Road and Mrs Myra Gator at 71 Priory Road. At this time, 34-year-old Mr Ian Playle was driving with his wife and two young children in his Ford Sierra back from a shopping trip. He had earlier been prevented from entering Hungerford from the common because Ryan was thought to be in Southview. As he rounded a sharp right-hand bend northward in Priory Road, Ryan fired a single shot into the car which hit Ian in the neck, seriously injuring him. Ian crashed into a stationary car. His wife and children were unhurt. 
Soldier Carl Harries, who had earlier tried in vain to save Sandra Hill, now rushed to Ian, administering first aid. Ian later died of his injuries. He was the last person to receive fatal injuries. Ryan then made his way towards the John O'Gaunt School, shooting and injuring Mr George Noon, who was on the back porch of his 109 Priory Road house. Mr Noon was the last person to be shot by Ryan at about 1.45pm. Ryan was then seen walking towards the rear of John O'Gaunt's school, although his subsequent detailed movements until he was actually seen there by police at 5.26pm were unknown at the time and even now must be speculative. Ryan had previously been a student at the school, so maybe he decided to go there as he was very familiar with the place. As the afternoon continued, information suggesting that Ryan was at the school was firmed up, although it was still far from clear how reliable this was. At 4.40pm, shots were heard from the vicinity of the school, and at 5.15pm, a shot was heard which had definitely come from the school. It is thought that several shots were fired during the afternoon by Ryan at the police helicopter and possibly other press helicopters flying over Hungerford. The shots heard at 4.40pm and 5.15pm may have been some of these. The police firearms team moved in to contain the school. As soon as it was confirmed that Ryan was at the school, a team of police officers with the fire brigade and ambulance service personnel attended Southview to extinguish fire at 1 to 4 Southview. That was the fire started by Ryan and had spread during the early afternoon to all four houses in the terrace. Police also secured the area for police forensic purposes. Back at John O'Gaunt School, a rifle, subsequently identified as the Kalashnikov, was thrown out of a third floor window at 5.25pm, and one minute later, a man was seen inside the window. A dialogue with Ryan began. By 6pm, containment around the school by armed officers was complete, and an outer cordon had also been established. A sergeant from the support group kept up the dialogue with Ryan, who confirmed his identity and started to talk about himself. He stated that he had an Israeli fragmentation grenade and a handgun. He appeared rational and gave the impression initially that he was thinking of giving himself up. He shouted that none of this would have happened but for the police coming onto the scene. Although by then he'd already killed several people and he also blamed his rampage on his car not starting. He expressed regret about the death of his mother and his dog and said of having killed all the others, It's funny, I've killed all those people but I haven't got the guts to blow my own brains out. At 6.52pm a single shot was heard coming from the school 
and subsequently Ryan failed to respond to questions. Because of the uncertainties about Ryan's weapons, whether in fact he had killed himself, the possibility of traps, or even if others were with him, an armed operation involving two armoured Land Rovers was carefully planned and finally at 8pm it was executed. At 8.10pm, police entered the third floor room where Ryan had been seen and he was found slumped against a wall by a window, dead, having shot himself through the head with his Beretta pistol. The emergency response now gave way to the twin tasks of supporting the people of Hungerford and the massive task of investigating the incident. Control of the immediate areas of the shootings was secured so as to exclude all activity, notably the press, and inquiries were carried out to locate next of kin and witnesses. A sweep search of a large part of Hungerford was carried out to ensure that everyone was accounted for and that no injured or dead person had been overlooked. The Casualty Bureau, which had been opened at Kidlington from 3pm, received the many incoming calls from anxious members of the public and operated continuously for 48 hours, receiving 904 inquiries. Activity continued for several days as the police investigation uncovered the full implications of the tragedy. A CID major incident room was set up at the Force Training Centre, Sullumstead. A massive stressful task faced the scenes of crime and coroner's officers in covering the many bloody scenes, dealing with the bodies of the deceased and recovering many items of evidence. Fifteen vehicles were removed for examination in which approximately 78 bullet holes were found, and a large number of other exhibits were recovered from the various scenes. Inquiry teams visited all the injured persons and known witnesses, and house-to-house inquiries were carried out to seek further evidence of what had occurred. Overall, a total of 55 CID and other specialised officers were involved for two and a half weeks in bringing the investigation to a satisfactory conclusion. As you can imagine, the events that I've told you about today took weeks for investigators just to work out and piece together. Both the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary visited the scene and the situation was explained to them by officers who had been involved. Funerals for all the dead were held, each one being attended by a Chief Officer of the Thames Valley Police. As you can imagine, the PSTD that affected not only the residents of the area, but the emergency services and police involved, as they had an awesome responsibility during the early stages of the massacre. Outdated equipment and the overall shortage of manpower within the force were no doubt factors which made the task much harder for all officers on the day. Factors which have now heightened their stress level through the sadness that some of them feel at the appalling death toll revealed. An inquest was held by Her Majesty's Coroner for West Berkshire, 
Mr. Charles Hoyle at Hungerford on the 24th, 25th, 28th and 29th of September. In his summing up before the jury retired, he said, I would think there may be two areas where your minds might well be moving towards. If there is anything you can suggest to prevent similar fatalities. Clearly, the response of the police is an important matter and how quickly that came about. I would like to say this, that we as a nation, a community, cannot have it both ways. By that, I mean we cannot insist upon an unarmed police force and at the same time expect the police in an emergency of that sort to become armed and become available at the drop of a hat. We have got to accept the fact that we have got to pay for the privilege of having a police force which is, if you like, on our side, not threatening us, an important part of our liberty. Most people would be very reluctant to say, do away with that. So far as the police response, leaving aside the armed branch of the force or that part of the force which can become armed, the response of the police obviously was pretty prompt because quite clearly one of the first people to be killed was PC Brereton answering the call and he was not alone. He was with another officer in another vehicle and two other officers who were local policemen called to the emergency. Looking at it from that view, their response would have been difficult to fault. There is a gap because the whole character of the occurrence changes from being that of a domestic quarrel. The whole thing changes to something which is absolutely unprecedented. Something which we in this country and in this whole country, a man going berserk and killing. The other thing that you may be thinking about is the question of firearms. And you will remember that this is a matter which has already exercised the mind of the Home Secretary. The jury returned the predictable verdicts. They made only one recommendation to the coroner which he accepted. The jury felt that semi-automatic weapons should not generally be available and that an individual should not be allowed to own an unlimited quantity of arms and ammunition. However, knowing that this subject is under review by the government, the jury makes no detailed recommendations. The Firearms Act 1988 was passed in the wake of the massacre, which bans the ownership of semi-automatic centre-fire rifles and restricts the use of shotguns with a capacity of more than three cartridges in magazine plus the breech. We will never know what made Michael Ryan snap on the morning of the 19th of August 1987. He took his own life and the only other person who could shine any light on the situation, his mother Dorothy, was also killed that day. I don't think you can blame him being bullied at school as he was 27 years old at the time, although the bullying probably did put him on the road towards being a loner and extremely close to his immediate family. Perhaps it was an undiagnosed schizophrenia or psychosis as some believe. 
Again, there are no medical records to go on to show any mental illness at all. Every one of his guns he acquired, he did so legally following the correct procedure. One thing I want to say, if you are a fucking bully, wake up to yourself and fucking fuck up. If you are being bullied, go and find someone who can help. If it is at school or even the workplace, get help. Don't let these fucking lowlifes get the better of you. Okay, end of rant. So, Islanders, that was the Hungerford Massacre. All over in the blink of an eye, but would go on to affect so many for so many years. And it's always hard to do the end of the show after such gruesome stories. But the end of the show it is. And I would like to first thank everyone for voting in the Australian Podcast Awards. We've made it into the top 10 finalists of the popular vote. So if you haven't voted yet, go to the AustralianPodcastAwards.com and then click on the popular vote link and vote for the island. You need to register first, but that's pretty easy. Get your co-workers to vote and your significant others. It's your island and I want to shout boom vagalunga to the whole world just for you. I would like to mention that my great mates, Tara and Barney from Bloody Murder, are also finalists as well as being nominated in the comedy section. Brod from Felon is also in the top 10 for the popular vote. I think you can vote for more than one podcast, so share the love as well. It's funny because we all had a meet and greet in December in Melbourne and we've all brought tickets for the podcast awards together for the night. To then find out that we're all in the running for the popular vote, it's just amazing. And Tara, if you win, you'd better hang on tight to that trophy. So please, we've only got a few weeks left to vote, so get in on it. I want to give another shout-out again to Maggie James, who is a great supporter of the island. Can we all please give another shout-out to Maggie tonight? Also, to the new Patreon supporters to the island. A big shout-out to Gerald, Lorianne, Jamie, Mary, Ashley, Minna from True Crime Finland, the Dub... Dark Poutine Podcast, Rita, the Strictly Homicide Podcast, Swindled, Cynthia, Morris with the Fantastic XB Ute, Kim Purple, Kate from Ignorant is Ignorance is Bliss, and I'd just like to do a big shout out for some of our longtime supporters while I'm here. Thanks to Jason, Julie, Sangrella, Rebecca, Lynn, Heather, Ed, Ariel M, Lindy the Cat Lady and Fiona. Thank you very much. And as I say, all donations go back into the island. If you want to become a patron, just go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can become a patron. All funds, always back to the island. You can also do a one-off payment via PayPal and you can do that by typing paypal.me forward slash true crime island. If you want stickers or koozies, you need to email me directly. 
My email is cambo at truecrimeisland.com and I can price it up for you according to postage. Again, I've got a few can coolers left and a few uh, bottle ones. Pins and key rings will be available in a week or so as they've now been ordered and all other merch such as t-shirts, hoodies, tote bags, mugs of rage and the like are via the shop at truecrimeisland.threadless.com. I just got the tote bag for Kate as I said last week and it's really good quality. If you need links, everything's at my website truecrimeisland.com or send me an email cambo at truecrimeisland.com. Again, you don't have to spend money to support the show. You can rate, review and share the love. The more people who know about the show, the better. If people don't know what a podcast is, then show them the way and don't forget to get them to vote. Join the Facebook group. Just search for True Crime Island and join in the chat. Don't forget to check out Twitter and Instagram. The island's handle is at True Crime Island. You can join in the chat and there's so many other podcasts you'll find on there as well. Hi to all the followers. Guess what? I got a promo for Based on a True Crime Podcast. Do yourself a favor and check that out. I'm also running another promo tonight for a podcast called The Marble Orchard Podcast. Oh, I just listened to it last week. It's great. Check them out. Well, that's about it for tonight. So, this has been Cambo and you've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. I'm Chelsea, and I love true crime. And I'm David, and I love horror movies. And we co-host Based on a True Crime, a podcast where we discuss the real cases that inspired some of the most gruesome crimes and criminals to grace the big and small screens. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play if you're interested in hearing the true stories behind some really great movies, including In Cold Blood, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, and Murder by Numbers. So grab some popcorn, with extra fake butter topping of course, and join us as we explore just how much of the movies that kept you awake at night are real. Welcome to the promo for the Marble Orchard Podcast, the weekly podcast that explores emerging mysteries of the American Southwest, hosted by me, Prickly Pete, and my co-host, Faye Daniel. And we're not just another true crime podcast, we also discuss history, unexplained events, and local monsters. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast listening app.